Welcome to the Painting Lines Podcast, your one-stop shop for all things tennis. Join Eric and Aiden in their discussion for updates on news and pop culture, and from hot takes to betting, they've got you covered. Ready? Set. Hey guys, welcome back to Painting Lines. We have a, an exciting episode this week. Uh, last week we talked about Indian Wells and recapped it. This week we're going to be talking about the serve and volley tactic and whether or not a player using serve and volley can in fact win a Grand Slam. So with that being said, uh, Aiden, why don't you tell us a little bit about what the serve and volley tactic is and how it's performed in today's game? So the serve and volley, it's pretty self-explanatory in the title. I mean, it's kind of a one-two punch where a person with a strong serve puts the player immediately on the defensive and then puts the point away with a volley. It's a strategy that was really dominant for a while. Uh, people like John McEnroe were really successful at it. But in today's game, it's kind of fallen by the wayside. And I think a big part of that is the fact that the people that still use that strategy kind of use it to an extreme. Mm -hmm. A lot of the players that employ a servant volley in today's game are really basing their entire aspect of the servant volley on having a massive serve and that pretty much putting the opponent away before the point even starts. So is it fair to say that those are mostly bigger guys? Yeah, I mean, you see a lot of these people like uh, Ivo Karlovich, John Isner, Riley Opelka, all these guys are servant volleyers. And they're all 6'10 plus. Yeah. But back then, you didn't need to be 6'10 plus, right? It was the average, it was the common style, correct? It was definitely a very common style. And I think a big part of that is that the players that were using it were focused on setting up with a good serve. But the big aspect was bringing in a good volley and having a strong net game. And that allowed you to put points away quickly. Versus today, people are almost trying to put the point away in one shot yeah. rather than two right and because of that i mean in today's game people have been struggling to break through in majors and even when players can get into like the top 10 like someone like john isner they struggle to really push it to that next level and win a grand slam going out on a limb here i personally don't think that a servant volleyer can win a slam today just because you have to be a more well-rounded player we have guys out here that and chill on the baseline. Look at Rublev. He rarely comes up to the net, and you know he's ranked inside the top 10. He's 8 or 9. And you have someone like Cressy, Isner, Opelka. They, I don't know if they've broken as high as Rublev has, in, and they've had much longer careers. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is you have to be a well-rounded player. You can't just have a big serve. It's just one of those things where there's a massive ceiling on just being good at serving because if you play a person with an excellent return game like you go up against Djokovic and all you have is this massive serve he's going to have a few games where he's on and he gets the break and these players just can't break him because they don't have strong enough uh baseline games obviously yeah, they're excellent players but they just mm -hmm. don't have a strong enough baseline game to beat these uh really top Guys. No, I agree. I, mean, I think that's what we kind of mentioned earlier, that a lot of these guys are, you know, super tall, have huge serves, get into the 130s, 140s, but they're, with that being said, they're easily able to be passed. So if your serve isn't right on the line or like 
blowing past these guys and they can really tee up on one of your returns. You know, these guys aren't the most agile. They're not getting everything back. It's very, it's a high risk, high reward type play. And to be honest, I hate watching serving volleyers. I like it thrown in, you know, how Federer, he would occasionally deploy it as part of his strategy, but watching someone like Isner play a match, it's just boring, you know, because when he's on serve, the points last maybe one or two exchanges. When he's not on serve, he's not really running around or anything, you know. He's getting a decent return, and then the guys are just kind of blowing it past him, and he's not making much of an effort along the baseline. Yeah, and I think in a situation like that, what you find is that to him, maybe it isn't even worth it to put as much effort into a longer point. Because he knows I don't want to waste my effort on something where I have a less chance to win when I can just conserve that and use it on my serve. So these players, they win ATP tournaments, like 250s, 500s, but never a slam. You know, is that because they can't sustain five sets? Or is it because you think there are maybe less quality players in each of these ATP tournaments and not everyone's at the same tournament like a Grand Slam, for example. I think you mentioned both the big aspects of why they can win a smaller tournament. You can kind of get lucky in your competition in an ATP 250 or 500. You're not necessarily going to play against the the top 10 people in the world. But I think also it is the, the second thing that you mentioned, which is later on into a five-set match, you're going to lose some zip on your serve. You're mm-hmm. going to lose some zip on all of your shots. But... If your entire thing is you have to be able to blow a 140-mile-per-hour serve past your opponent, and all of a sudden you're not hitting it with the same pop. No, I definitely can resonate with that. I know at least when I play, the later on in the match it gets, my serves get lazy. You know, I'm tired. I'm not putting every ounce of effort as I was in the beginning of the match into my serve. And honestly, it is kind of a strategy where if you are tired – and you can't really last long in the points, you know, maybe it's a hot day, your opponent is just really, you know, systematic where he's going to force you to make the air and you just can't really last in these long rallies. <laughs> Serving volley is kind of the way to go, right? It's an easy, like, you know, couple exchanges here and there, and you may get lucky with a nice volley or you may get passed, but then you just walk right back to the baseline, get set, do it all over again. So, yeah, I mean, you said it earlier, these guys aren't going to be able to last into the fifth set with these, you know, 140-mile-an-hour serves. Especially because of how big they are. I mean, we talked about their their frames being like 6'11", six, six, yeah. 7 feet even maybe. And you're talking about these guys that have to carry so much more mass around a court. I mean, I feel like it's significantly easier for someone like Schwartzman, who's five, six, I don't know, to <laughs> run around a court for three or four hours than a guy that's six foot 11 and carrying like an extra like 100 pounds. Yeah, I know. It is funny seeing the height disparity on the court when, say, a Schwartzman and an Isner play. Yeah, when they take the photo before. Yeah, when they take the photo. <laughs> he goes up uh, to like I'm his pretty waist. sure they played, yeah, they played doubles together that's a couple wild. times it's funny yeah was it, i wonder if it was just a joke they were like oh let's just yeah. have the tallest and shortest <laughs> guys out there probably but another point i want to bring up is the advance in technology now i think because rackets are you know higher quality 
They're able to generate more topspin now, so players can hit harder and therefore are able to pass these serve and volleyers more easily. Um, I think back in the day, you're kind of seeing these like old wooden rackets with more of a flatter shot. So people weren't really blowing it by. And, um, you know, you look at, like we said, Rublev, people like Casper Rude, people with massive forehands, they're going to get it by you. And even if they're not, they're going to rip it at you so hard that you're not going to get a great volley on it. So the ball may just pop up and then give them another chance to hit a, a winner shot. I think that's very true. But I think there is an aspect where obviously both players have these advanced rackets. So if you're a server and you have a better racket, you can hit a harder serve. But that, does, I mean, that doesn't help you as much. It, it I think it doesn't help you if... Because you're volleying. You're not... I guess you, you... You're hitting probably more aces than they were. Mm -hmm. So like... Isner probably doesn't volley as much as McEnroe did. Like McEnroe's probably setting using his serve as a setup with yeah. this worst racket versus Isner trying to just essentially hit a winner mm -hmm. on his first shot. That's a good point. You know who actually reminds me of McEnroe these days? Who is that? Dennis Shapovalov. Just what? as far as his serve, have you seen first of all, they're both lefties. Second of all, have you seen the lean on Shapovalov's serve? It's almost identical to McEnroe. They get they toss the ball so far behind them, lean so far back, and then just kind of torque that uh, that torso towards it. And honestly, they're both pretty entertaining to watch too, as yeah. far as character wise. And I, I, I mean, I assume that's just to generate a massive amount of like kick on their serve. Mm -hmm. right right Tommy Paul kind of does it too he's got a big lean I personally I don't like the lean I start to get a little wild um I'm more of a I will toss the ball straight up or even a little more to my right side so I'm a righty instead of getting the lean I like hitting like grazing the ball getting a little more of the like outside aspect to it kind of like a sort JJ like a, Wolf like serve. a spin serve a spin serve yeah yeah, yeah. so well I think I think to be a you know quality player, you have to be able to switch up your serves. You yeah. have to have multiple serves in your arsenal, right? You can't just rip it down every time, even if you have a massive serve. Players are going to catch on to that. Now, I don't know if these serve and volleyers just think they can get by on speed, they, you know, by blowing it past someone, or if they really have a few other serves in in their arsenal that they can deploy. I mean, I think I think they definitely do, but. It's it, it's hard to argue against them just using their first serve, their power serve, I guess is what you would call mm -hmm. it. Yeah, power serve. If he's hitting the ball 140 miles an hour, no one's getting that on a consistent basis. If, so even if, if someone gets a little it, lucky, I think it's hard to argue and say, hey, you got to switch up your serve. Ah, Dude, see, I think that if you're <laughs> – I think if a player sees 140 mile an hour serve, like serve after serve, they will catch on to it. Well, I mean that may, maybe that's why you see players like Curios, mm -hmm. who has a big serve when he wants to hit it, then switch it up with like an underhand serve. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because it's an effective strategy. You see, I think the most underhanded serve aces from Curios, mm -hmm. just because I mean obviously it's not that common of a strategy, but. It, he uses it very effectively because it people have to 
respect his first serve's strength. And if they don't respect it, then he just hits it right by him. And if they stand too far back, he can just underhand it and they can't get to it. It does have a very negative stigma to it, though. Like, I wouldn't really consider an underhand serve I mean, an wh- honorable point. Like, I think it's a BS point if you want. Why is it? Why is it any more than we were just talking last week about the uh, drop shot? Why is it any more BS than a drop shot? At least a drop shot is, you know, in the middle of the rally, whereas the serve, I feel like it's it's kind of one of those bush. Look, I'm not saying that I agree with it, but I can see why people don't like it, and I think. It just has like a Bush League aspect to it. For example, it's kind of like a trick play. So like when you see, I don't know, a Statue of Liberty in football or in baseball when, you know, the whole team huddles up around the pitcher to talk and then the second baseman ends up having the ball, but the the pitcher fakes like he has it. And then when the guy on second takes his lead, they tag him out. You know, it's all right. They got him out, but like, come on, really? The thing though, like you have to be ready for it, right? I mean, there's nothing, obviously, like you said, it's within the rules, but it's not like they're going before the person's ready. They're yeah. they're setting up, I mean, if a player goes and, and the returner's back is turned, like that's a BS strategy, that's not yeah. fair. Yeah. But the, the returner is ready for a serve, mm-hmm. and you hit a legal serve. Why is it an issue that they didn't hit it hard? Right. No, I mean, I, I see it. I um, How about when Kyrgios kept doing it to Sitsipas and Sitsipas ran up and just crushed it, like tried to hit him. Well, I he, think... he did not want to win the point. He wanted to hit Kyrgios. Yeah, well, I mean, that's just because Sitsipas has no mental strength. <laughs> I mean, that oh. match, that was, that was such an interesting match because mm-hmm. you saw Kyrgios mentally dominate his opponent, which is... Something that you very rarely see, but I guess with Kyrgios, it's almost like an easy target. Man, I want to see. I want to see how that pans out. Like, I really hope they meet again soon. I think the thing is too is is it seems as though Kyrgios, or not Kyrgios, Sitsipas actually sort of picks fights with a lot of people on the tour. Yeah, I don't think he's very well liked on tour. I'm I gonna say, and I I was watching a press conference with Kyrgios after that match and he mm-hmm. was like people like me in the locker room all i'm gonna say is people do not like him in the locker room and i'm he like said that yeah he said that and, oh and i'm like God. i mean i can understand it because even if even if you get upset with curious and how angry he gets on the court he seems like a chill guy to hang out with yeah he's a personal guy you know yeah sitsy pass I, I feel like is yeah. would be very closed off and also very aggressive Yes, yes, exactly. All right, so going back to the point that we made earlier, how these serve and volleyers are not the best athletes, to win a, to win a Grand Slam, you need to be able to break your opponent, right? These guys, just, they can't. You know, every single match you watch with them ends up in a tiebreaker. And if if they... If they lose serve once in that tiebreaker, then you can pretty much count on a loss. When I was at the Open, the Miami Open this past week, I was, you know, checking the lines on every point. And I was just wondering if it would be a winning strategy if, because you can bet point by point. So if 
let's say the first point of the game, you can bet that whoever's on serve will win that point. And if you do that the whole match, you know, obviously you're gonna lose some, but overall, like will it be a winning strategy? I feel like with these guys, it would be. When I was at the open, I was videoing I watched the Bublik and JJ Wolf match. And I was waiting, waiting, waiting for Bublik to do something like cool on serve, right? So I'm videoing every single one of his serves. Finally, I get sick and tired, but I'm like, all right, I'm just gonna enjoy the match. I'm gonna watch it. And he rips an underhand serve. Oh, I'm sure it was immediate too. Like you're yeah. like, I'm gonna put my uh, phone away. Just... It, it was, it was the one right after. That feels so bad. Yeah, and I didn't even get to see it live because I was putting my phone in my pocket and was had to shuffle around. And then I look up, and I just I look up because I hear the crowd like, oh yeah. And then I see the ball just like do do do. And you see like and the I look up on the probably. screen. Yeah. yeah. That feels oh, so man. bad. I know. He's he's a fun guy to watch though, Bublik. He's very very into the crowd. Which he's not. Hmm. He's a tall guy. He's six five six six, but he still can move. You know, like he's not. There's a big difference between someone who's six ten, like a John Isner and Opelka, and then someone who's six five six six, like Medvedev and Bublik. It's almost night and day. But yeah. So let's see. Yeah, what, I mean, continuing uh, continuing on the idea of of if these big guys can win a slam, mm-hmm. have you ever watched the highlights of the John Isner versus Nicholas Mahout match in at Wimbledon? That went a couple of days, didn't it? Yeah, it went like twelve hours long, and it really kind of proves the point of these guys cannot break serves. Mm-hmm. Were they but, both serving volleyers? No, Mahout wasn't. Mahout okay. was just like. I I don't know how to describe him. He was just a balanced player, <laughs> not not super special, but a balanced player. Yeah, and he didn't have that crazy good of a serve, but Isner couldn't break it, and mm. obviously Isner has a strong enough serve that Mahout couldn't break it, and the, so the match went. The last set was like seventy to sixty-eight. Oh my god! They changed the rules since then, right? They, I believe they, they have now. Yeah. yeah. Which, so which I honestly happen. think their changing of the rules is the reason that Federer didn't win Wimbledon 2019. Oh. Because in that match, I don't think he got... I think his the first time he got broken was when he had match point in the fifth set. Mm-hmm. That was like the only time that Djokovic broke him. And then Djokovic won, I think, two sets in tie breaks and the last set in the tie break. Yeah. So I think if if that match had just continued in games, I think Federer would have eventually won it. But that's eh, just my happier. opinion. Yeah, no, I mean everyone's entitled to their opinion. So why are these young players, you know, these players in the modern era, even trying serving volley right now? If you can't win a slam, yeah, I mean are I don't just know. I mean playing just to play. You know, they're pretty content playing professional tennis, making pretty good money when. The occasional tournament. And the reason these guys are doing it still is because of kind of what we talked about earlier with the it patches up parts of your game. A servant volleyer who has a massive serve and can put away points quickly can be that can cover up the issues with the rest of their game and it can allow them to play at a higher level. Mm-hmm. So these guys can come up and make it to the professional level with this serve and volley game even though there is a ceiling on it yeah 
but the ceiling isn't the ceiling is there but it's so high that it's hard to say oh you can't be dependent on the serve and volley win it's going to win you the majority of these matches right it's just not right. going to let you maybe win a slam mm. no I, and i agree i think you know if if you are good enough to make it to professional by serving volleying like hey are you going to change your strategy no that's that's your game and it may not get you let's say to a grand slam but at the end of the day i don't think every single player has grand slam on their mind should they maybe but do they probably not yeah i, I mean, think look at someone like curios yeah he said i mean if he wins a slam he's going to retire but i also think he doesn't focus fully on that mm -hmm. he's out there to enjoy his life and play tennis no i know and that's why we've only seen you know a handful of players win a slam in the last 20 years because in order to do that you have to want it like it is not you can't half-ass it it's not like a you know i'm at my job right and i, I don't necessarily love my job i'm just gonna kind of coast through do my thing like but i'm good enough to be here that's not going to cut it that may you know you'll make a very good living playing that way but you won't be the best of the best to win a slam you have to be the best of the best these players are good they're not great exactly hmm. all right so would serving volleyers of the past be successful in today's game like that's is it I apples to apples I think it's a good question. I think that, I mean, it's obviously difficult to compare a past player to today, but I think that players that were more dependent on the volley aspect of it may be able to, not someone that was able, just dependent on a big serve. Because mm -hmm. I think that if someone can... McEnroe was spectacular at the net. I think if, if you're able to use that aspect i think it would almost be that a servant volleyer would adapt to t today's game mm. so so people that were spectacular volleyers would still use that massively to their advantage but it wouldn't necessarily be based on a oh i'm going to serve and put it away immediately yeah. they would just i think come to the net a lot more yeah i so the one person that comes to mind for me that I would love to see play right now is Pete Sampras. Yeah. I think he would give Djokovic, Nadal, Federer, all, or he actually played Federer, but at least Djokovic a run for his money. You know, I think he can beat the younger guys too. Sampras, prime Sampras would beat half the guys in the top ten, in my opinion. Why? Uh, what's your your why reasoning behind that? Because of that. He, the big serve and so he he was kind of a later stage serving volleyer like he wasn't as early as McEnroe where you know I think that was you can tell you can look at the difference in swings you know not to discount McEnroe at all but if you watch him hit a tennis ball it's not the most elegant or graceful thing ever whereas Pete Sampras kind of came on in the later half of the serve and volley era and still had a a very nice stroke a gorgeous one-handed backhand a powerful forehand and like you said in order to be good in today's game you have to have a little bit of both right the serve and volley has to be part of your game it can't be your whole game 
And while Sampras's serve and volley was a big majority of his game, it wasn't the only thing he can do. He could still hit deep ground strokes. That's true, 100%. Uh, do you think that of the four slams, if someone was going to win it, do you think it would be have to be at Wimbledon on grass? Mm. Because I feel like it probably would, but mm -hmm. there's also a level to I know that they actually change. Do you know they actually changed Wimbledon's like the speed of the the grass? What did they do? When did they, they change? That? They kind of how you were talking about earlier with the making it more exciting mm -hmm. and like it's not fun to watch a servant volleyer. That actually was an issue at Wimbledon. They they were they were having so many things where the points were just super fast and mm -hmm. so people didn't want to watch it. It wasn't exciting, so they slowed down the court. I think. They made they the grass longer or something. Longer? I'm not, I'm not, maybe they wet it more. I'm not 100% mm -hmm. sure how they actually accomplished it, but wow. they slowed down the courts so that the servant volley couldn't be as like effective and the, there would be more drawn out points. So, with the faster court, what is that just for like, okay. The part that makes the faster court more advantageous for a servant volleyer is it on the serve or is it on the volley like where does that part come in it's definitely on the serve i mean it's mostly on the serve because because these guys are winning because they have mm -hmm. extremely rapid serves they're hitting don't right you by the think guy. don't you think though when say you're serving you're on grass and you're coming up for that volley and you hit your split step don't you have a bigger chance of not catching your footing or slipping because it's grass Yes, but I mean these guys are so trained. I mean, like mm -hmm. you see, you obviously at Wimbledon you see the most slips and slides and falls yeah. because it's grass. But you don't see. It's not like every time someone comes to the net you see them fall. Mm -hmm. So these guys would be practicing that. They'd be training that. So they'd be hitting their massive serve, getting a nice skip off the grass, getting probably a weaker return, and then yeah. putting away the volley. Yeah, where uh, so when you are when you are serving volleying, where's the best part of the court to take the volley? So, for example, when you serve it, do you want to kind of like lightly jog up and see where the ball is coming, or once you serve, are you hightailing it up to the net as fast as you can and reacting to I, the? I think it depends on. I think it depends on how how well you hit your serve. Because if you hit, if you like crush your serve and you know I just nailed that, mm -hmm. you're probably trying to get up to the as as far up as you can as fast as possible so that you can get the best angle on your next shot. Because you yeah. know their return is not going to be strong. Mm -hmm. If you have already committed to the serve and volley, but you know, okay, that serve wasn't the best, maybe you don't want to go quite as far because you're like, there's a chance they get a decent return. And if I overcommit, getting up to the net then i won't be able to slow down and get mm -hmm. a good get a good volley off i know for me personally whenever i do serve and volley which is you know a, i would say i try to do it at least once per serving game and when i do it it's more of a because i don't have that great of a serve but i do like to kind of follow it up a little slowly because i feel like i have more control then like when i'm just hightailing it up to the net I feel a little out of control and I can't really gather my feet, but that's just me. How do you do it when you serve in volley? Well, I are, think that are you trying to get up there as fast as you can. 
I usually don't use the serve and volley that much, but my serve, in my opinion, is one of my strengths. I mean, obviously, I'm not a high-level mm -hmm. player in terms of that, but it's one of my strengths of my game. So if I hit a big serve, I'm probably trying to get up to the net as fast as possible and try to put away a high uh, overhead or high backhand volley. Got it. All right. So you want to get into segments or? Let's do it. What's new? All right. Uh, my what's new, I just saw this the other day. Really exciting. Del Potro actually started training again uh, no recently. Way. And he's hoping to come back and compete in this year's U.S. Open. Oh, that's awesome. So Let's I think go. everyone in the tennis world is excited to hear that. Yeah. Del Potro is maybe one of the most widely loved players ever on the tour i mean mm. you got to go like Federer and then del potro <laughs> and so i it's really cool to see that he's trying to come back i mean obviously he had struggled with so many injuries during his career and so maybe just that time off was just what he needed sort of let allow his body to recoup without any pressure and then i mean i know he's older and he's probably not going to come for a really full comeback mm. but that time to sort of relax and recoup. Maybe we'll get a, a few more tournaments out of him. Yeah, I'd love to see him. I'd love to. Um, I hate to be a pessimist, but I feel like what's going to happen is there's going to be all this hype for him returning, and then he's going to, you know, get his butt handed to him in in the first round. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised, but so it, sad, it is a. So how does that work? He would get an automatic bid, right, to the U.S. Open. That's what I thought. So for me, I saw that there are discussions flying around that they are talking about fans possibly being able to come and go as they please during tennis matches instead of having to wait for turnovers or changeovers, which I agree. I think fans should be able to come and go whenever. I don't think it's as distracting as people think to the players because a lot of the players are for it. You know, they want a more interactive fan base and they want what's good for the sport. For example, I was down in Miami for the Miami Open. You know, I'm super excited. I go up to the court. Oh, sorry, you have to wait for the changeover. I'm like, all right, the game, the match just started, so I just have to wait for one game. They're like, no, you have to wait till the third. So I'm sitting down there and I can't even see the match. They make you wait at the bottom of the stairs for three games. I don't like that. I'm I'm not with it. I I think they should let people come and go. I think it's a situation where you're almost adjusting to the person that likes it the least. It's like, oh, some people are okay with it, but if it impacts someone else more, mm -hmm. that's why they don't do it. Like some players you said are in favor of it. Yeah. So those players are like, oh yeah, it doesn't affect me, but maybe it affects someone else. It right. maybe it affects their opponent. And so that almost sort of gives them a advantage if it doesn't mm -hmm. bother them. I agree. I think the another aspect of it is if you're in a tennis match and you're in the, the court, there's almost, I don't know if there's a level of sort of accountability, like where you don't, obviously you want to be silent during these points. Mm -hmm. If people could come and go freely during a match, someone could just run into a stadium just yell something in the middle of a point and then run back out and have no accountability for it. But what's so wrong with that? 
it's a distraction for the point. What do you th- what else, what do you think is wrong with it? All right, well, a big counter that always comes up, which I don't necessarily agree with, but look at free throws in basketball. You have fans being as rowdy as they can, shouting whatever they want, trying to distract the other person. So why can't tennis become like that? So do you think you think it would be good if if like they were just yelling during the points? I mean, I think it would make tennis a little more interesting. I'm more of a, I agree. I'm kind of a traditionalist, but I think this could be something where they're trying out something new for the sport. I think changing it, you know, tennis has to become more popular. I think what you're describing sort of, it makes it so that the audience and the, the crowd is a much bigger part of the game. And that could be seen either as a good thing or a bad thing. Because mm-hmm. if fans are just constantly yelling, like an NBA game, yeah. you have to be sort of warding off that, like abuse from the crowd, mm-hmm. if it's negative. Mm-hmm. And in an NBA game, obviously that exists. In an NFL game, that exists. But the difference is that you're not alone on the court in those games. That's true. That's true. I think this will be something that will be very interesting to see in the future, and we'll definitely keep tabs on it. So let's move on to the bet of the week. I have Tommy Paul and Carlos Alcaraz, that match Tuesday, uh, going over two and a half sets for plus 150. I think that, you know, so far Alcaraz has been bageling his first two opponents. Um I think he hasn't seen anyone as tough as Tommy Paul yet. And I think Tommy Paul is going to have a little bit of an advantage over Alcaraz just because he's played more matches and he's seen tougher opponents. So you have Carlos Alcaraz coming into this match, you know, fairly relaxed, hasn't really seen anyone tough where, you know, Tommy Paul is definitely going to give him a run for his money. He's already won and know versus Carlos Alcaraz. And my third point is I think Carlos's drop shot isn't going to be as effective with Tommy Paul as it is with the other players on tour because of the fact of Tommy Paul's extremely athletic nature and his ability to get to these shots. So, you know, I don't, I'm not saying Carlos is going to lose. I just think that it's going to be a tight match and it's going to go over two sets. That's cool. That's that's a cool bet. I I think those are interesting sort of prop bets. Uh, Who do you have? My bet is uh, an upset, big upset. Garen over Sitsipas, which is a plus three thirty. He's a plus three thirty underdog. And the reason for this is kind of because Garen's been playing really well. He's in great form. He beat Rude and uh, Nishioka both at Indian Wells. He beat. Uh, Baez in the second round here at Miami. And I think what's going to happen is Sitsipas has yet to play a single match in this tournament. So I think that he's not going to come out sort of full strength. I think he's going to be fresh, but I think he's going to be flat. And so I think it's going to be a situation where they split the first two sets and then Garen takes it in the third just because he's sort of in the... uh, in good form right now. Mm-hmm. No, I like that bet just because Sitsipas came out and said that he's not healthy and that he doesn't expect to go super far in these turns. I think he said that before Indian Wells, but 
Anyway, yeah. when you have a player saying that they're not expected to do well, come on. Like, they're kind of already sealing their fate there. Plus, yeah. I love those odds. Plus and, and it's a It's a situation where, like, I think that Sitsipas, ha- he hasn't played a match. I mean, that can, obviously, the extra rest helps, but not having sort of warm-up matches for harder opponents. I mean, Garen's not an easy guy to beat. Mm-hmm. So... I think that may impact him. Good deal. All right. We saw some crazy matches in Miami so far. One of them being Hercatch Kokonakis. Did you see that? Oh. So that that's my match of the week. It went three sets. All three sets were tiebreakers. The first set, Hercatch had six set points that Kokonakis saved, ended up winning the set. Second set, Hercotch saved two match points, ended up winning the set. Third set, Hercotch saves five match points and goes on to win. Like, come on. This was so exciting. Spectacular. The rallies were amazing. The points were fantastic. You know, the passion from the players, you could just see it when it got into that tiebreaker. That match had me on the edge of my seat, and it was probably the best I've seen in I a while. I got to go rewatch that after this. Mm-hmm. My match of the week is McDonald. He beat Berrettini 7-6, 7-6. And this match is as much of a... De- McDonald has as much of a defensive masterclass as you can have. There were so many points where Berrettini was just on the offensive the entire point, And McDonald just got everything back. He was just playing so scrappy. And then all of a sudden, he's just able to turn these points around and win. Which that. is really tough against a top opponent like Berrettini. Yeah, the hammer, man. The Italian hammer. Yeah. One it's the like the Akron hammer, shows. LeBron. <laughs> uh, all right, well, this was a great episode. Thanks again, guys, for tuning in. And uh, if you have anything to say, DM us, shoot, shoot us an email. We want to hear your thoughts. So, all right, we'll uh, catch up with you guys next week. Thanks. All right, and that's the show. If you're not already subscribed, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. You can find us on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube at Painting Lines Podcast. Feel free to shoot us a DM or email us any questions or thoughts at paintinglinespodcast at gmail.com.